Astra Taylor is a documentary maker, author, and co-founder of The Debt Collective. She has a new film, You Are Not Alone, and a new book of essays, Remake the World. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. The last time I interviewed Astra was two years ago, on episode 93. At the time, she had a new film called What is Democracy? and a new book called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Now she's back with a new short film and another book. Alongside these works, she spent much of the past 10 years helping to organize the debt collective that brings together debtors like a union to harness their combined power. In 2015, they helped lead a student debt strike that forced the U.S. government to take actions leading to over $2 billion of debt cancellation. Now the Debt Collective is negotiating with the Biden administration to bring further relief. In January, Astra released her new short called You Are Not Alone, loan meaning debt, while also evoking the loneliness of being in debt. In the film, Astra gathers a group of students who have coped with debt, along with college professors, to discuss the value of education and the price of education. Here's a group member speaking from personal experience. My partner has over $200,000 of student loans. Um, So we've been navigating that for the past number of years. And it's really hard to talk about that. And even, you know, anybody we talk to, family or whatever, they were just like, you get away from this partner who has this. This is like such a terrible thing for your life. Um, And and he is not a, a terrible person. So he has this public job now. And that's great, but like we're still counting on being in debt essentially for the rest of our lives, which has changed the nature of what we're doing. We're not having children, mm-hmm. we're not getting married, um, and it's shaped our lives in incredible ways. We also hear from those who participated in the debt strike with a message of empowerment. We started striking our our debt. We stopped pay. We stopped paying. We said no more, and that got really powerful. I got my thirty thousand. Pam got her 220K. You know, we had 1 billion at this point worth of student loan forgiveness. If we can do it for some, why not all? You can watch You Are Not Alone for free on The Intercept. Astra's new book of essays, Remake the World, draws upon her experiences with the debt collective. In one essay, she looks back on Occupy Wall Street in 2011 and how that event set her on a new path. When she first showed up to Occupy in Lower Manhattan, her friends assumed she might make a documentary. But she writes that she took a different inspiration from the movement. She didn't want to stand on the sidelines with a camera. I asked her why. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because I just you know, randomly picked the, up the book and that paragraph stood out to me. And I was remembering that feeling because it was what people assumed I would do. Uh, my film Examine Life had just come out a couple years prior, and I was more known at that time as a filmmaker than as a writer or as an organizer. Now I have a kind of more multifaceted identity. And as I, I write, I, I, it's just very simple. I say the idea of making a film about Occupy Wall Street made me sad because I knew that it was going to be a certain arc. I knew that the encampment couldn't last 
right? And that the most visible aspect of this movement was the people holding physical space, all of these tents, the beautiful libraries people made, the kitchens, the people speaking in these assemblies using what was called the people's microphone where you would say something and then the crowd would echo it as a kind of um, amplification because you weren't allowed to have uh, electric amplification in Manhattan at your protests at that time. And what I wanted to do, I wanted to take that energy because I felt that it was so valuable, right? I mean, Occupy Wall Street was a kind of um, breakthrough in the sense that we had a decade where it was incredibly hard to get any traction for any kind of protest movement. I mean, think, I'm thinking specifically about anti-war movements under Bush, uh, Bush too, right? I mean, you, I'm sure you were at these protests where, you know, you would gather and either be ignored or arrested. People would be kettled immediately. And, and, and so not only was Occupy significant to me in the fact that people were able to hold this space, but it, it also felt like a break with the dominant ideology because people were talking about class. This idea of the 99% and the 1% felt so refreshing to me, so different from anything I had seen in my lifetime. And, and I just felt this responsibility to try to, to carry that energy forward. And it, with the knowledge that, that would the form would transform, that it wouldn't be about having a tent, but that it would have to take some other, some other form. And I didn't know um, in the beginning what that other form would be or the ways it could manifest. I just knew that it, it would have to change. And that if I had been in the filmmaker mode at a remove, I couldn't do my part. You know, I wouldn't be able to really kind of put my energy into actually making the thing. I would be in the mode of, of uh, you know, reflection and representation and a kind of, at a kind of distance and remove. And it was just this moment where I just felt like this is my chance to get off the sidelines. The last thing I'll say about it is that one thing I had done in that 10 years, and I write about this in, in that same essay, is that I had been reading and studying social movements of the past, specifically of the 1960s and 70s. And I had been trying to write something. I'd bas basically been wondering, why aren't there social movements? <laughs> you know, Why can't the anti-war movement get off the ground? Why is this different than what previous generations experienced? You know, What are the conditions shaping our uh, political possibilities and our ability to create solidarity. And, and one thing I learned in all of that reading was that movements, you know, are just really messy. <laughs> they're not, um, they're, they're never sort of fully formed. You know, we look at them through this idealization of the past, you know, and we kind of have these heroic figures, but the fact is they're always fraught. They're always difficult. People are always clashing. You know, they're always risible. Like at the, at the time, you know, these people we come to revere were despised. People hated Martin Luther King when he was actually alive. And so I was like, I just was like ready to engage in the mess. And I was ready to plow through disappointment and frustration and the annoying drum circle and, and be there to, to expand that energy. And I, I do, there have been periods where I felt really like, what have I done with my life? <laughs> I could have made some other documentaries. I could have, you know, studied other subjects. But now I think with, you know, we're coming on the 10 year anniversary and I feel like, you know, we did change the conversation and it was worth it. Well, I mean, you've had some extraordinary work come out of the last 10 years and we'll talk more uh, about that. But 
when I read that, I think something that struck me is that, uh, to my knowledge, we still don't have a great documentary about uh, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, I remember at the time feeling like, oh, this is going to be a extremely well documented event. You know, I can't uh, you know count the number of cameras um, that I would uh, see down there, um, and maybe it speaks to you know, really how hard it is to make a good uh, documentary, that it's not just about, you know, shooting a lot of footage of protests, but that to make that film really well, um, you it would, it would take a, a, a real level of craft and thought. It's interesting because there were some collaborative documentaries that were made at the time, and I'm, I'm actually forgetting their names, which sort of kind of speaks to your point. Uh, you know, I think it did occupy certainly got me thinking about what documentaries about social movements are and and could and should be you know and in that sense i think there's there's no denying that occupy wall street set me on the path to making my film what is democracy and i think one you know thing that makes those films hard is they they um it's hard to tell a collective narrative right and protest movements are things that are they're kind of hard for people like me and by that I mean writers and filmmakers because you know we're used to putting our names on things I'm the director I'm the author but when you're in a social movement you're you're in the flow you're in the collective it, it takes masses of people and how you tell uh, a story that stars a multitude is actually like a real narrative challenge um, which is part of why people resort I think to these tropes of the hero narrative right or you know telling a kind of biography of a of a change agent. Um, so I think, you know, it got the gears turning for me, but I agree that there isn't a kind of definitive um, film of Occupy. But, you know, I also like, you know, the kind of activist cinema that's, that's a bit more quiet, that isn't really about the protests or the holding of space, but these movements that tend to be about dialogue, deliberation. There's a whole tradition of kind of 60s cinema of that, right? Where, you know, because a lot of what movements are and what organizing is, it's actually just the quiet work of conversation and connecting with other people um, and not necessarily the sort of, it's all that leads up to those moments where you burst into the public conversation and, and suddenly people see you. You know, most, most organizing is not that, that's the exciting part. You know, that's the climax and the denouement, not like, <laughs> not the actual, um, not, not really the, the bulk of the experience. When we speak of films about social movements, I think of the documentary Berkeley in the 60s, a history of activism at the University of California set during the Vietnam War. Here's Berkeley student Mario Savio giving a speech on campus. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. So interesting. I, I watched that movie over and over, Berkeley in the 60s, when I'm talking about how I spent those years studying the past and, you know, prior movements. I mean, for me, it was so informative. That was part of my, I think, education and what what it meant to be an activist. So, you know, it would be great if somebody made something like that about this period that would, you know, inspire uh, future organizers. But I, I, I need to rewatch that because I, I 
you know, I definitely watched it a dozen times. <laughs> yeah, it's a really strong film. Um, so you were talking a minute ago about a different tradition of documentary that you pinpoint in the 1960s uh, that kind of that covers people in conversation and uh, and dialogue. And I, I wonder what are examples of, of films that you're thinking of? One that's really beautiful and probably not known to many folks is a National Film Board of Canada film called Encant Encounter at Quatcha House, which I think is probably from 1968 and um, is filmed in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And it's just this encounter basically of uh, young Black people and they're talking about how to challenge the racism in their community. So it's, you know, black and white, shot on film. It's like 30 minutes. Here's a clip from Encounter at Quacha House. I, th I think that parents, our parents, mine included, have gone through a system That's it, you know. where, they've, where, where they've been put down. They're, the educational uh, differences between the young people here and our parents, it's so great. I mean, all young kids of today are much different from their parents. You know, all young kids, and, and blacks are no exception. And I don't think the, the issues are the same. I don't think they look at them the same. But I think the kids are, are willing, and I think they're also able to look at the issues. They read more. TV is here. They're able to travel more. You know, I think it's the kids, man. You know, if you can show the kids the, that this system out there uh, that they're living in is basically a racist system, a rotten. Then, then, you know, if they realize that, as Denny says, then you can do things. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, documentation of, you know, Fred Hampton, right, trying to build his Rainbow Coalition. And um, what you just see is these in incredible intimate encounters where people are talking about the conditions of their lives, you know, and trying to bridge the gap, trying to bridge the gap between black and white, trying to think about class. Um, and, uh, and, and so those, those films always run kind of true to me because again, you know, what we tend to see in most media portrayals and representations are the exciting moments, the clashes in the streets. And those moments are really important. I mean, being tear gas will radicalize you <laughs> for sure. And, you know, images of that will radicalize witnesses, people who see them. Um, but if you're someone like me who is kind of thinking, well, how do we actually build these structures and organizations and institutions that can carry this forward, right? Like, how do we actually build the sustaining and durable power to challenge the powers that be, then, um, then these other films have sort of really valuable insights because it, it's, you know, it's really about, again, it's, it's all of those conversations and all of those conversations then, you know, add up to something. And I, I love, I think there's part of it for me in those films where, you know, you can call them political films, but they're philosophical because what it is is regular people reflecting philosophically on their existence, you know, and, and on their exploitation, sorry, their exploitation and on their expectations. And so I kind of love that too, because obviously, you know, my films all have a philosophical bent. And so it's a kind of democratic philosophy that's being done in those films as well, which I love. And this is, you know, I've, I've said this before, but part of, I think why Occupy got under my skin that first day is that, you know, I got up in the morning, my Friends who had helped plan it had been, you know, asking me to come to the meetings and I hadn't gone. I went the first day and I just thought, well, okay, another march. We're going to go with our signs. We're going to yell at the New York Stock Exchange and I'm going to come home and my throat's going to be hoarse and, you know, whatever. But we didn't do that. We walked to Zuccotti Park 
And we all sat down in these tiny circles with 10, 12 people. And we just got to know each other. And, and we talked about, we, talk, we literally just talked about the question, why are you here? What brought you here? You know, and what would you like to see changed? And it was so powerful. I mean, A, that just would appeal to me, I'm sure, but knowing who I am. But what it did was it forged these really strong bonds. The people I sat with that day who I'd never met before, I'm still in community with. Um, and I, it was that uh, philosophical aspect, you know, we're not just reacting and shouting, we're, we're sitting and talking and thinking about how we need to change the world. I mean, that was also what was what was so, I think, unique about the Occupy movement. And what, for me, just, it broke my expectation of what a protest was and could be. So the um, scenario in the film, You Are Not Alone, uh, very much evokes that. You're, you've gathered together uh, people, both students and uh, teachers, um, uh, all who are affected in some way by student debt or want to talk about it. Um, can you talk about you know how you assembled that group? Yeah, You Are Not Alone was shot on one day, February 7th, 2020. So it was one of the last things I did before the pandemic, you know, in, in quarantine, it was, you know, it's interesting now to know at that time, I, I must have known that everyone was talking about this coronavirus, but it just felt still like a, a, a distant phenomena. Uh, I was put in touch with um, Paul Holdengraber, who New York listeners might remember from the New York Public Library as a, a, a great host of conversations with writers. Um, and he had recently uh, taken a position founding this new center for dialogue called Onassis LA. And so essentially, you know, he offered me this space, the house that the film is shot in and a, a budget to produce a conversation, a dialogue. And it felt really, um, uh, it, it felt like a brilliant opportunity because at that point, this movement I've been helping to build ever since Occupy Wall Street, this movement of debtors <laughs> to fight for, the abolition of debts, but also the provision of all of the things we need to survive. So we fight for the end of student loans and for free public college. We fight for the end of medical debt and universal health care, et cetera. Um, our movement was at a kind of tipping point because we had launched a student debt strike back in 2015. And um, against the odds, we had won at that point over a billion dollars of student debt relief. That number has just gone up by a billion because the Biden administration is now restarting some of the um, debt relief um, uh, processes that the DeVos administration, the Trump administration halted. So, you know, we're back on terrain where we can fight again to get people justice. So we had one significant relief and some of the people from that striker in the film, but also we had, our message was being taken up by politicians on the national stage. Suddenly we're in a situation where Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and even the other candidates, now even Joe Biden um, said, yes, okay, we need to cancel student debt because this is an issue of justice. And in fact, around the period we filmed, Elizabeth Warren had just accepted our legal theory for how the federal government can cancel all federal student loans. So all basically, almost $1.7 trillion of student debt. So we're kind of at this tipping point and wondering what's next for us? What's next for our movement? Where do we go from here? 
And of course, we didn't know what was next. <laughs> didn't know a pandemic was coming. Right. Like we had no idea what was what was happening, what, what, what was about to, to befall us. But it was an opportunity to reflect on our situation and be in dialogue with people we wanted to be allies with. So I invited Wendy Brown, the brilliant political theorist from Berkeley, Dylan Rodriguez, who helped found Critical Resistance with Angela Davis and others, Barbara Ransby, the brilliant historian of, of the civil rights era. She wrote a wonderful biography of Ella Baker, Stephanie Kelton, who is a leading economist um, who is really, um, you know, uh, pushing forward the conversation and pushing the Biden administration to, you know, get over the long uh, resistance to deficit spending that has shaped politics in this country. So it's it's just a really interesting group of people, kind of co-learning because we have people who attended predatory for-profit colleges, talking about their experiences and sort of, you know, um, enlightening these esteemed academics. And so it becomes this this. Uh, the space where you just see people asking questions um, and kind of uh, plotting a course forward. Um, that's just a very, in my opinion, you know, what I tried to do and what it is, it's like an authentic account of how these movement spaces um, feel, right? Uh, and hopefully it's edited in such a way as to kind of spark epiphanies in the viewer because people say a lot of interesting things in this conversation. So it was about five hours in real life, you know, whittled down to 45 minutes. I saw another conversation you did with Wendy Brown talking about this, where she described uh, that in the room, you know, some people were ostensibly teachers and some students, but there was learning going on back and forth. The teachers were learning from the students uh, in that room as, as much as vice versa. Yeah, and that was really... Um... You know, something that we, and, and when I say we, I mean me and my uh, my collaborators at the Debt Collective. So that the Debt Collective is this union for debtors that we founded in the wake of Occupy Wall Street. And also my collaborator, Eric Stoll, who's a wonderful filmmaker. Um, you know, what we, we, we cultivated that. And so the space is set up to reflect that. Everyone's sitting in a circle, for example, right? So it's not one person at the podium. And, and the one thing I said to... Um, you know, the student debtors and the activists in the space, because there's no stupid questions. Don't be afraid to, to ask for clarification, because actually that's educational for these academics. They need to know when they're using jargon. They need to know when they're using words that are not um, legible uh, and familiar. And, and for instance, there, there's a moment where an academic uses the word austerity, uh, which is not a particularly jargony word, but but one of the students says, you know, I'm not sure what you mean by austerity. Can you describe that? Yeah, and so meritocracy comes up. And in fact, one of the long discussions that wound up on the cutting room floor, and it was actually, in my opinion, kind of the most interesting as it unfolded, but it was just too long for the film, was a discussion of what neoliberalism is, right? And neoliberalism is very hard to explain concisely. And, um, and so that, but it, I think that, um, you know, I wanted to show uh, the, in a way the, the film is about releasing shame, right? So in a way it's the releasing the shame of indebtedness because um, that's something Barbara Ransby says in it. She says, wow, you know, people here are talking about their debts, their struggles. And it reminds me of work in the prison abolition space where also people are stigmatized and have shame. But it's also, the film also shows people sort of having no shame about asking questions, you know, and admitting they don't know things. And that to me is, um, 
just a really important ethos to cultivate. You know, I, I'm a, a huge proponent of just shameless curiosity, I guess. <laughs> and so I wanted to demonstrate that as well in the project. Um, let me go back to what you were describing before about this achievement of the debt collective to uh, support th uh, this student debt strike that, as you describe, uh, helped clear a billion dollars uh, of debt. Um, I, I, here's a case where I can admit uh, to not knowing. Um, I don't really understand how that worked. Can, you know, can you describe what the student debt strike was? In, in the film, someone says that it was it was just 15 people who uh, who were striking and and caused this to happen. Yeah, it started with 15 people. So the idea of the debt collective is pretty straightforward. Just like a labor move, a, a labor union allows workers to organize and then collectively bargain with the boss, right? And sometimes workers go on strike, they withhold their labor. Our provocation is that debtors can do something similar. The debtors can organize into debtors unions and that, you know, alone our debts really overwhelm us. I mean, right now in, in you know, we're in 2021, the average American before the pandemic died with $62,000 of debt. I mean, it's indebtedness. The fact is most people cannot reach the American dream of home ownership. Most people are just dreaming of getting out of debt. I mean, we, it's, it's a crisis that um, is hard. It's, it's hard to fathom actually. Um, and, it, you know, in my work as a organizing debtors, you know, I, I encounter incredible pain every day. I mean, people who are just, because of the way compound interest works, because of the way fees and penalties work, they just are in these holes trying to just survive, to put food on the table for their families, to keep a roof over their heads, to get an education and to get medical treatment. So, you know, through various ways we encountered uh, and started organizing with students who had gone to predatory for-profit colleges. So, you know, think University of Phoenix, DeVry, ITT Tech. They had gone to schools owned by a company called Corinthian Colleges, Inc. People who don't know much about these schools don't realize how huge they are. These, these companies serve hundreds of thousands of students. They're the main producers of black graduates in this country. So it's incredibly racialized. And what basically people get, people get subprime educations for huge costs because these companies take out the maximum student loans. They target immigrants, you know, first generation students. They target black single mothers. They target veterans. They target disabled people. I mean, these are parasites these companies and they're, they're, they ruin people's lives. So these people we met had gone to a school that was under investigation being sued by the CFPB and, um, and, but they had signed arbitration classes so they couldn't sue even though they had been defrauded. And so we said, what if you went on strike? What if you said, I can't pay, I won't pay. So FIB, we started organizing with 15 people. And in addition to the strike that grew, those, their numbers grew we did legal research because we're nerds. <laughs> and we found that they actually had a right called borrower defense to repayment. They had a right, if, they, if you are defrauded by a company, you have the right to have your federal student loans canceled. The problem is the government had never bothered to rule make. They had never figured out what the rules were so you could enact that right. So we speculated and we built an app that you could use on your mobile phone where we were like, this is probably what it's like to assert this right. This seems like a credible thing. And then we flooded the Obama Department of Education with thousands and then tens of thousands and then over a hundred thousand claims from defrauded students. And we created a crisis 
in the Obama administration. And they were forced to do a rulemaking session. They were forced to force to change federal law. They were forced to start issuing relief. Now, in my opinion, you know, they did two things that were really evil. One, they bailed out these predatory schools, just like they bailed out the banks, which then made it that much harder for people to get relief. And they didn't issue mass discharges. They made people apply one by one, which meant that, um, and they, I think they knew they had made an error when Trump won the election, because that meant Betsy DeVos could just one by one deny people. <laughs> so they thwarted justice. So that was the fight with, that's how we've won this $2 billion of relief through this process. But while we were doing this campaign, we- And, and when, so when you say $2 billion that people one by one had to apply for, is that- People one by one saying, hey, I've got $50,000 of debt, I have $200,000 of debt, and that getting uh, cleared, adding up to over a billion dollars? Yeah, now over $2 billion. And it's it's basically, um, yeah, through this, this coupling of this legal strategy, these claims coupled with the strike. I mean, I think it's really important that if we hadn't gone on strike and created all of this pressure and news in the media and using, you know, and been kind of very militant, they never would have responded. You know, I mean, this is, and this is a, you know, a, a theory of, it's not, it's not just like, oh, look, the legal system works. It's like we built power and we put pressure on people um, you know, we had a meeting with Arnie Duncan, who was Obama's Department of, Edu uh, Department of Education secretary, and we canceled at the last minute because we felt, you know, he was full of shit. I mean, you know, we we had this very um, public campaign of just saying, you know, you're, these debts are totally illegitimate. We're not paying. So while that campaign was unfolding, we found another piece of information that was very interesting. We, we realized that in the Higher Education Act of 1965, there's something called compromise and settlement. In other words, the ability of the government to create student loans also gives it the ability to cancel student loans. So it turns out that Congress already gave the Secretary of Education the authority decades ago to cancel student debt. In other words, we don't need Congress, we don't need um, the Senate, <laughs> we don't need to go through these uh, through the legislative process because the power is already there. And so this is something that we began pushing and popularizing back in 2015. And what has happened in the last year is that Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Schumer and a bunch of other um, elected officials have come around to the debt collectives legal theory. And so I think it's this you know I think what we're trying to model and we're doing quite well is this thing of like sort of radical policy, we're like a radical policy shop. We're basically telling elected officials, this is how you do it. Here's the power you have. But then also building the public pressure, engaging in these sort of more militant strategies to say, and, you know, and morally, you know, this is the right thing to do. And also, you know, we'll fight you if you don't. <laughs> because that, and you need both of those things because, you know, elected officials love to tell you you're just a silly idealistic activist. You know, at Occupy, we were told, Oh, vote, you know, don't you know, need, you need to vote, you need to get a job and vote. And now it's sort of like, well, here, you know, all right, we'll be savvy, we'll play the savvy inside game, and we'll play the radical outside game, which hopefully means where were your worst nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talking now, May 17th, 2021, where is the movement at right now in putting pressure on the Biden administration to, uh, to, make some moves to cancel student debt. It, it, 
the last thing I had read is that the Biden administration was talking about uh, canceling ten thousand dollars of debt for uh, for individuals. I know you're looking for a much higher number than that. Um, where's that discussion at right now? Yeah, I mean, first off, I think it's you know important to name the fact that Joe Biden campaigned on any degree of debt cancellation as a as a movement success. I mean, certainly this wouldn't have happened without Occupy Wall Street because it was at Occupy Wall Street that we had the first protest. We had a protest called One T Day where we marked the day student debt passed one trillion dollars, and we always. You know, we being again, you know, my my collaborators and I always point to that moment because the media was so dismissive of us, and they said, "Oh, this is a crazy idea; it'll never get any traction." And so, you know, actually, it turns out if you just keep pushing something, you can get traction. So Joe Biden campaigned under you know substantial pressure to uh, he campaigned on the promise that he would deliver a minimum of ten thousand dollars of student debt relief immediately. Right. And so we see the immediate as a sign that, uh, you know, they should use compromise and settlement authority again, not go through the legislative process. And in fact, what we know now that the Biden administration is waiting on a memo, they've requested a memo uh, from the Department of Education and the Department of Justice about this legal authority that the debt collective has discovered. And we're up, we're cautiously optimistic. Um, and we've been scheming with, you know, other people in power about what happens. <laughs> depending on where this memo goes. We, um, we launched a broader student debt strike. We launched something called the Biden Jubilee 100 at the beginning of the Biden administration. Uh, and I think uh, these, these were 100 student debtors symbolically representing Biden's first 100 days. And what's so, I think, moving to me about that group of people is that they were all ages. So they were recent college graduates. They were also grandparents. They were black, white, they were from, uh, you know, there were doctors. There's a, a, you know, a, a humanitarian doctor, a young man who owes something like six hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, people who were in an okay place until their spouses died, <laughs> and then their finances collapsed. I mean, you just have this incredible. You have to, to be clear. Th 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 this is debt. This is not just student debt you're talking about. It's medical debt and. Oh no! These are all student debtors. Oh, it's all, okay. All student debtors still. Um, uh, you know, specifically targeting the Biden administration and saying, you have the power to do this. We know you do. So, you know, don't disappoint. Uh, and, you know, in trying to drive home what a popular action this would be. I mean, I think if, if the Biden administration follows up on its promises, it will be historic, <laughs> you know, and it's something people will really take note of. Uh, you know, it's popular across the political spectrum. It's popular with Republicans. So, you know, we're continuing um, you know, we just had a national week of action and there were protests in you know, almost a dozen cities. So we're just, we're organizing. That's what we're doing. We're, we're sticking with it. And um, it's not what I necessarily imagined my personal destiny would be, <laughs> but it's something, it's this experiment that I'm part of that, uh, you know, is playing out. And I'm hoping that it opens the door to new kind of new creative thinking and new movements, you know, that other people will carry forward. I want to ask you about, you know, your own personal destiny and how you see your own uh, uh, role in this, because 10 years ago, when you first showed up at Occupy Wall Street, you, you know, you you were primarily uh, a filmmaker in, in your actions. Uh, since then, you've become an organizer, uh, done much more writing um, uh, and had a stint in a band. 
And it feels like the things that you've described, what you've been able to accomplish with your comrades in the last 10 years is extraordinary. Wiping out a billion, $2 billion of debt is a bigger action than anyone who's made a film in the last 10 years um, uh, can can boast, you know, as far as I know. Um, so in some sense, that must be feel very satisfying uh, uh, from the last 10 years. But I also sense in you um, a an eagerness to kind of get back to you know, your creative side and, and the things that you might be sacrificing when you're spending time in organizing meetings. I wish, you know, I think people have different temperaments. It's something else I think I say in that essay, which is there's this attitude and, and I, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, they're an activist and I'm not, right? And, and you know, I guess I feel this um, duty. It's not, it's not really a desire. It's a sense of duty. It's like, and, and it's also this sense that, well, why would I write about things or promote things conceptually if I'm not actually trying to enact them? I mean, I suppose in that sense, I'm very kind of romantic. I, I think you have to try to enact your values. Um, but it, it, you know, organizing goes against the grain of my personality in lots of ways. I, you know, I like to read and write, which is a really solitary activity. And I, yeah, creativity is nice. I mean, activism is very reactive. You know, you have to react to opportunity and circumstance and, you know, it's really focused on, um, you know, the suffering of the world, which is, a, um, you know, can be overwhelming. Um, and it's also hard to bash your head against the wall, <laughs> you know? It's like, we're just asking for the ability to live with dignity. Why does this have to be so hard? Um, so I, I think I, you know, I cope with it by kind of having this ebb and flow where I get really into it. And right now I'm really in it. I'm in the organizing because we have an opportunity. The Democrats have a trifecta, however fragile it is in Washington. And I'm scared of what the future might bring, you know? So I'm trying to do what I can in this moment. But I, I'm, I'm also cultivating seeds of projects that might nourish me in a different way um, when the opportunity presents itself. Because I think it's, it is interesting. It's like, what are, what are projects for? You know, with organizing, I wanna cancel debt, I wanna change policy. But when you make a film or make art, you're looking for a different kind of, you know, you can't judge it by those metrics, right? Like it's a, it's a different, um, it's just a different mode of engagement and a different kind of return that you're seeking. I want to ask you about a dialogue that comes up in You Are Not Alone. Um, the question arises over the slogan, College for All. And there's a South African professor in the room who's advocating, we should just declare college for all and figure out how to plan around that later. Because if you if you try to plan what it means ahead of time, you'll you'll never get around to uh, to a movement growing up around it. Um, and there are other academics in the room, notably historians, um, who are saying, "Well, hang on, you know that could be a risky move." Here's a bit of that exchange in "You Are Not Alone." Yes, but if the argument is that you can't move unless we have a clear plan, we will never move. Exactly. Well, because then you get stuck with only intellectualizing. Many of the problems of the 20th century, in terms of radical change, have been not having a thorough enough plan. We've seen this happen. I don't. I don't think this is the argument. Is that there needs to be a a, a plan before we act? We're saying as we act. 
we need to be critical of every of what we do because there's already a plan already inside of your demand. So when we say free college for all, all means something already. It means not black, not indigenous, not marginalized. Almost nobody listens to historians. I think to their detriment. <laughs> I know we're annoying. I know we're annoying, but we're nervous because like we see the we see patterns. We've seen how shit has hit the fan before. We've seen how stuff's can co-opted. And we're and we're just offering, you know, case studies. So it's an interesting contrast of uh of viewpoints about tactics and um and I, I wonder how you think about that discussion. Yeah, I really liked that moment. I mean, obviously I put it in the movie. I mean, one thing, the film, it's in three parts, right? So the first part is really people talking about debt. It's called debt. The second part is education. And it's um, it's more the professor's point of view talking about being academics. And the third part is liberation. And night, dusk is kind of following, you know, so there's natural light. I didn't like the scene. It's getting dark. And Barbara Ransby is like, let's have some wine. And it gets, it's just, it loosens up, you know, in the last act. And then you get into these timeless activist conundrums. And then this is one of them, right? It's like, do we need the 10 point plan? Or if we, uh, or will that make us too rigid? And should we just try to respond to the opportunity that presents itself? Um, you know, and so there's this, this debate that's going on. And, uh, you know, and I think it's something that people often wrestle with, you know, activists are often, the power structure often tells us like, well, what's your plan? You know, as though we need to dot every I and cross every T before we can say, hey, this is wrong. <laughs> you know, like, hold on, police shouldn't be killing black people. And they're like, well, what is your 100% plan for restructuring the entire criminal justice system in the society? And the truth is activists have a lot of ideas. I have a lot of ideas. We all have a lot of ideas, but, but you know, um, but there is this sort of paradox here or, di or dialectic as someone says in the film. Um, you know, and the thing is you can have beautiful plans, you can have beautiful laws. In fact, there are lots of wonderful laws on the books in this country that don't mean anything because we don't have the power or the will to actually live up to them, right? So just, you know, what I, as I just said in the Debt Collective's work, it's actually been about discovering these rights that are on the books that are just dusty and never used because, you know, their debtors don't have any power and, and it's actually the creditors who are lobbying and getting and, and pushing things in their favor. Um, so yeah, my view is that, you know, we, my view is we have to live in that tension and that dialectic and that, that is why, you know, as much as I'm saying that organizing is reactive and tiring, you know, it, it is also really educational. I mean, you learn so much. It, it's that mix of theory and practice. And so it's got me thinking, you know, out of that, the film, You Are Not Alone, I wrote this essay called The End of the University that's actually in this, in Remake the World. It was published in the New Republic, where I actually am like, hold on, well, what, what would college for all really look like? What about you know, what do we mean by that? What would education be in an, in an egalitarian society? And so then I sort of research and think about that and, and, you know, enlarge my thinking and deepen my assumptions about what that could be. Um, you know, so there's always more, there's always more to think about. There's always more uh, to plan, but I just, um, but I felt that that, that exchange in particular was a real, even though we were talking about debt and education, it was kind of something that you could see the, the, you could see that exchange across different 
domains of activist life, you know. You can, you can imagine climate justice activists having the same dis discussion or prison abolitionists having the same discussion, you know. How much do we need, how much, how, how do we need our white papers <laughs> or do we just need to get organizing? The video, You Are Not Alone, is dedicated to the memory of David Graeber, who died last year. He's the author of the books uh, Debt of, uh, uh, and Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. Um, can you describe who David Graeber was to you? David Graeber, yeah, he was my friend. Um, it's interesting. I, I I went back recently and tried to figure out when we had met, and we met over email. I, a friend introduced us, and it was one of those friendships where we just started writing these long, long letters about gift economies and creativity and uh, capitalism. And, you know, it was like, there was no introduction. We're just suddenly having this, uh, exchange. So David is, was, you know, um, an anarchist, an anthropologist and an activist. And, and David really embodied the ethos. I think that, you know, I aspire to of just being someone who experiments and enacts their ideas. And so David was one of the people who actually planned Occupy Wall Street. And I hinted at him earlier when I said, oh, my friends had been trying to get me to go to the planning meetings and I was too cynical. It was David who was trying to get me um, in, in August to attend some of those. Uh, and he just felt that something, that, that the time was right, that there was, there was a kind of readiness in the air to do something. And you know, I, he was thinking rightly about the Arab Spring about the movement of the squares in Europe, right? That if people are in other countries are rising up, let's bring this to the United States. And then he recruited me really actively into the debt resistance movement, you know, into what would become um, the, the this kind of think tank almost that you know David had to move to London for work, but that we would continue that and, and build build the debt collective. So you know he he put so many of the, these ideas into words. He did so much of the historical research in his brilliant book, Debt, that you mentioned. Um, and, you know, and we're trying to make David proud, you know, still. Uh, and losing him last year, you know, uh, he didn't, uh, it wasn't um, COVID, but just a really unexpected um, death. And he was, you know, still so young, was a real uh, tragedy. And, um, you know, and, and I think, well, for so many reasons, just as his friend, but because he was someone who was just, he was outside the box <laughs> and that's, and that's where we need to be. You know, it's, it's that creative spirit of like, yeah, let's, let's learn from past movements and then let's rearrange them, remix them and try to make something totally new. Um, you know, why do, why do we have to pay our debts? This is the thing David asked. Um, and I, I reread debt this year, actually, because I wrote a piece, again, a piece that's in this collection. And, um, and what I found so fascinating about his take was just the radical, the radical vision that he's in. Because as I say in the piece, you know, I think there's still part of me that wants to do this moral accounting of who owes what to whom, <laughs> you know? Um, and David, it, the true anarchist that he was just wants to obliterate that mindset, you know, and live in an economy of credit, of generosity. And, and so, you know, to this day, David's still challenging me, you know, to be more idealistic, um, to, 
you know, to see all of the cooperation and all of the camaraderie that actually is part of our daily lives, you know, that we're, that we're taught not to notice. Um, and, uh, and yet, you know, I still feel like, um, even though he would hate it, that I owe him this tremendous debt. I want to thank Astra Taylor for speaking with me. Her new film, You Are Not Alone, is now streaming for free on The Intercept. Her new collection of essays is Remake the World. You can hear her on Pure Nonfiction episode 93 talking about her film, What is Democracy? See our show notes for links. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Hannah Nordenswan, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Hold up. 